If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119, and uh, when you find it, stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. The word of the Lord says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his, command, his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you've given us a means of understanding who you are, if it, if it is only just uh, with our finite minds, Lord. Uh, we praise you that you've given us the canon of scripture, Lord. We thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for your son, Lord. We ask that you would Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand, Father. And bless me, your servant, Father, that I, as I exposit your word, I might do so faithfully, Lord. Uh, we praise you and we honor you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, looking at this sermon or, or preparing for this sermon was a lot to me like, uh, you know, when you go buy a new car, you'd think... You think that you're getting the one that nobody has for some odd reason. You buy the car, and as soon as you leave the lot, you see hundreds just like yours, and you never saw them on the road before. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I told Pastor Chris um, about this a couple weeks ago, men's breakfast. I told him what the subject matter was going to be, and he's like, yes. And then he brought a devotional and touched on a lot of the same points that I wanted to bring today. And then Pastor Robert gets up here last Sunday from this pulpit and brings a lot of the same points that I wanted to bring today. And I began to doubt in my mind. I started to see the same car that I just bought, and I thought, do I still want to preach this sermon? I began to doubt it was the right message. Um, but as I prayed through the eight verses, it, it became more and more apparent that this is right. God's word is to be exalted. God knows what he's doing, and he brought me to this text to follow after what he intends and not what I intend. Amen. My prayer is that I would be in his will delivering his message. There is no other religious text in the world that can hold a candle to the Bible. The Quran isn't inspired. The Book of Mormon isn't inspired. The Bhagavad Gita is not inspired. Only the Bible has the distinction of being inspired by God. In 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, we find this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And some translations say inspired instead of breathed out, but it literally means the same thing. 
Think of the root word. What do you do when you respire? You breathe. What do you do when you expire? You breathe your last. To inspire is different. I know some of you find inspiration in your favorite hobby, or maybe your husband or your wife, but truly God is the only one that has ever inspired like this. He's the only one that ever breathed out and communicated to us truth, and in such a beautiful way. More than this, sanctification is found in this truth communicated to his people. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. That means, on a basic level, grow them to maturity, to mature Christians through your truth. It's fitting that I follow Pastor Chris and Pastor Robert in preaching on the beauty, the excellence, the glory, and even the benefit of God's inspired word. I titled this, What's in the Word, because I want us to look at a few things God's word has for us. I'm not going to bring you a three or four point sermon today. We're simply going to go through the text and flesh it out some. I hope you'll indulge me in that. Before we dig into today's scripture text, I want to give us a brief overview, though, of Psalm 119. There are some things to take note about about the chapter. Number one, it's the longest chapter, not only of Psalms, but of the entire Bible. It's longer than some of the books of the Bible. Think of John's epistles, Jude or, or Philemon. It's an acrostic poem. There are 22 sections with eight lines or verses per section, totaling 176 verses. Each section represents a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and every line or verse starts with the corresponding letter of the alphabet. Imagine how limiting that would have been for the psalmist who wrote the psalm. And if you read it through, it's amazing how beautiful it turned out, even with that limiting feature. It is one of the word-exalting psalms in line with Psalm 1 and Psalm 19. See, the Bible has a lot to say about itself, but Psalm 119 stands out among them. It's worth studying and absorbing. It has many things, but today we're going to focus on the Word of God, for which there are many synonyms, and we'll discuss that as we move through the text. The last point I want us to, to, to absorb before we go into the text is that most scholars agree that it was written by either David Ezra or Daniel. As we go through, that's going to be important uh, for what we look at. So let's get into the text of Scripture. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. In these first three verses, the psalmist is giving us a small blueprint of how to be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? And in some translations, you'll find that word, which is in the Hebrew, eser, translated as happy. The Bible is actually giving us a blueprint for the blessed or happy life. Please note, there isn't a correlation to anything material in these verses. There isn't a call in these verses to plant a seed and see your blessing return a hundredfold. There isn't a magic prayer that will turn your life around and your lot in life will be enlarged. I'm not endorsing a a book called The Blessed Life or a show on TV that goes by the same name. If anything, I would ask you not to go there. 
Instead, the blessed life is one that seeks diligently through God's word to find what God defines as blessed. The blessed life is more of a life that grows roots and is stable. So with that in mind, turn, turn with me to Psalm 1, and let's read the first three verses. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, some of you might be thinking, you just heard the word prosper. You might be thinking that you were wrong, Brother Jimmy. Uh, we're definitely talking about prosperity here. I want you to define prosperity according to what you see in the passage, though. It isn't riches. All the gold in the world will be worth nothing one day. It's about a man or a woman of God that grows strong in the word, stable because of it unmovable because of the roots, dug in and grounded in the word, always nourished because of the stream. And it is a stream. If you've read the same passage several times and have received different things at different times from that passage, it is a stream. God's stream of his word that he communicates is nourishment. His word nourishes and it grows us. I tell you, my friends, the man who delights in the law of the Lord is far better off than Bill Gates or Elon Musk. He's a man acquainted with the word, and that's far greater. Return to verse 1 in, in today's passage, and notice the reference to the law. Who walk in the law of the Lord. When we talk about the law of the Lord, it can mean many things. Basically, instruction, direction, or teaching. And many times we find the law will be a reference to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that are the basis for our morality, and it's written on our hearts. But in this case, the law points to the law in general. And since we know it was most likely written by David, Ezra, or Daniel, we also know it was written to the people of Israel. It was directed to God's people. In much the same way as this verse states, the Bible that you now hold in your hands was meant for you, if indeed you are a child of God. Again, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2.14. Here we read, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is one that hasn't been born again. He is by nature one who rejects God's word and denies it's the truth. There are highly intellectual people in the world that look at the Bible and then look at the person holding fast to the Bible and consider that person a fool. They would consider that someone has used the book to deceive and wield power over that person that holds fast to the Bible. They would try to convince you that you've been sold a bill of goods and they would try to turn you away from the Bible. 
They would try to convince you of a big bang or an evolutionary process when the Bible describes things differently. They would call you a fool for believing the creation account in Genesis is actually truth. The problem is they are that natural person who will not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And if you've been born of the Spirit, then this book is the means by which God communicates to you and you will be able to understand under the guidance of his precious Holy Spirit. My friends, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, this book was meant for you. Meant to show you who God is. Meant to show you who you are. Meant to show you our destination. And meant to show you how to navigate this life. How to navigate this world until we reach that glorious destination. Even after we reach our final abode, I think that we'll continue to marvel at his word. Christians should be a people that believe the the Bible is our foundation. Uh, And I'm going to state emphatically that here at Ecclesia, we hold fast to the word of God as our foundation. Many of you walk past the five solas banner hanging in the foyer, or as my good friend Pastor Henry would say, the foyer. You may go past it and may not think too much about it, but that first one, sola scriptura, means that we believe the word of God is what God gave us to communicate his truth to us. It contradicts what the world has to offer. It contradicts culture's idea of what it means to live a happy life. When you hold fast to the word above the world, the world doesn't like it very much. You have a sure foundation. You have a solid rock on which to stand, and the world doesn't like it. They want to chip away at this foundation. They desire to have you believe that the Bible is antiquated and misogynistic, patriarchal and divisive. They want you to believe it's a tool for power over the weak-minded. This is what the world wants you to believe the Word of God is. Turn with me to Psalm 11. Let's read the first three verses. I love the sound of turning pages. Psalm 11, verse 1 through 3, reads like this. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is apparent what the world wants to do. They want to destroy our foundations. There's study after study out there by groups like Barna and the Fuller Seminary, among others, that bring back results that show our children fall away from the faith, mostly after high school, when they leave their home and set out to adulthood. And one study from Fuller Seminary was found that the main factor in whether young people leave the church or remain steadfast in their faith is whether they have a safe haven to express their doubts and concerns regarding their faith before they leave home. See, this reminds me of when I was growing up in church and I had a question for my Sunday school teacher. I can't remember the question I asked, but the response was simple, because the Bible says so. That's not sufficient. God's not afraid of the question young people have about the Bible, and we shouldn't be either. That's why the pastors here often have a Q&A, Q&A sessions where we invite the hard questions. 
The Bible is sufficient to meet those questions head on. I also say this needs to be balanced with the teaching our young people receive from their parents at home. Deuteronomy teaches to make sure the word is what you discuss with your children in the morning and at night and every time you sit down to eat. It should be a frontlet before your eyes at all times. In Ligonier's State of Theology survey conducted just this past year in 2020, there was a concerning trend among Americans regarding the literal truth of Scripture. The following statement was posed in the survey. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. I'm going to read that again. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. In 2014, 41% of Americans surveyed agreed with that statement. In 2020, just six years later, that number has risen to 48%. Nearly half of those surveys believe the Bible is full of myths. They're chipping away at the foundation. That's why the world is so topsy-turvy. There's gender confusion, there's same-sex marriage, there's rampant sexual immorality paired with the murder of unborn babies and the culture calls it good. Even in the church. Just this past week, a well-known church ordained its first three women pastors because the culture is firing its arrows at the foundations and, our, and the foundations are crumbling before our eyes. The law of the Lord, his testimonies, his direction, his ways have been set aside for what culture believes to be the right thing. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Let's continue in the text. Before we dive into verse 4, I want to ask a few questions pertaining to verses 1 through 3 that we just read. Think about these questions, and I'm going to kind of go slow through them. Who among us? has a way that is blameless. Which of us is walking perfectly in the law of the Lord or keeping his testimonies? We just confess corporately that we haven't sought him with our whole heart, which is what is articulated in verse 2. Which one of us can say we have done no wrong? I ask these questions because they bring us to verse 4. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would admit that we haven't done these well and still struggle to keep his ways today, even as Christians. But this isn't a blueprint for salvation. I want to make sure we're clear. I'm not preaching a works righteousness salvation message today. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I go back to what I said earlier in that God uses his word to sanctify us, to grow us into spiritual maturity, And the fruit of that spiritual maturity is to be conformed more and more to the image of his son. With that in mind, look at verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. But again, none of us have done this. This verse goes further than the first three that pointed us to, to the way we might be blessed. This verse shows us that it's not a request to keep the law. It's not an if you feel like it kind of thing. It's not a when you get around to it kind of thing. It's a command. A command is an authoritative order. 
he has commanded that his precepts be kept. Not just kept, but kept diligently. And your thoughts, your thoughts now must wander over to the place where you realize how big a task that turns out to be. To strive to keep his precepts is a tall order, and it changes you to think about it. And if I'm causing you to feel some tension about being able to keep his commands, I mean to. Because it leads me to the place where I can tell you that there was one who kept all the precepts of God diligently. I tell you about the command to keep the precepts of God because when I do, it becomes apparent that in not keeping the law, we have separated ourselves from him. And we, in that state, are without hope. But Jesus never swayed to the right hand or to the left. He never faltered or slipped. He never sinned, not even once. Let me show you what he did. Turn, turn with me to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12, reads like this. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing law, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus is our hope, our only hope. Through him, we can be free of the thought that we haven't kept these precepts diligently. Through the the grace that God has shown us in sending Jesus to live that sinless life, he removed the burden of keeping a law that held us captive. Even in our feeble attempts to be righteous, all we found was a boastful arrogance. Jesus is the way. If God has so gifted us with the faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been freed from these commands. I just want to take a moment, a sidebar, if you will, before I take us through the remaining four verses. If you're listening to me now, whether in this room or through the video feed, and you haven't repented of your sins or even your vain attempts at self-righteousness and put your trust in Jesus, I implore with all that I have, do so now. Think about this. You've spent so much time trying to keep these commands. It's gotten you nothing. Acknowledge with us that you lack the goodness it would take to walk into heaven without Jesus. Admit that you haven't lived the perfectly righteous life. Turn your eyes to the cross and place your trust in him and him alone. Only Jesus has lived the perfect life, and he willingly traded that perfect life for yours if, in fact, you have believed in his perfect life. He paid the ransom to set sinful man free from the bondage of faking perfection. With that comes the freedom to pursue righteousness. 
That leads me back to our text. Let's read verses 5 through 8 one more time. But we find, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I will not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Tone changes. The psalmist has changed his tone in the last four verses of Aleph. To round out the first eight verses of 119, we find a plea for mercy, a cry for help in keeping these commands. As a born-again, blood-bought believer cries out daily for help in killing the sin that so easily besets him, so should his cry rise up that says, help me to be steadfast in keeping your statutes so that my ways stop being my ways and become your ways. The cry of the psalmist is a cry out to God for help in keeping the statutes and commands of God. The plea of the psalmist isn't to avoid sin at all costs, although it doesn't exclude that. We actually will see in the, in the next letter of the alphabet if we kept on going in, one, in 119. But it's a plea to help in keeping the statutes and commands. You see, there's always been a power play between two things in, life, uh, in the life of the believer. We will often say, don't just turn from sin, but turn to Christ. In the same way, in our text of Scripture today, we see the desire to do more than, just keep from, than, 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 to, than to just keep from sinning, but a desire to live holy and to keep his statutes, testimonies, and commandments. To walk in his ways and to keep those precepts diligently, not because it saves us, but because he loves us. We strive after that righteousness because he wants us to. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But we need his help. And so the psalmist teaches us to cry out, to plead for his help in keeping them, and also to keep our eyes fixed on the word, to learn it, to know it, to live in it, and be transformed by it. And when we get to verse 7 and we see that our worship is involved in it, more than involved in it, learning his word is worship. Then we begin to see that when Jesus says in John chapter 4 that God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth, he was speaking of those who love his word and live by it. I'm about to close with the last line. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Seems out of place. Doesn't seem like it fits in this spot. The psalmist is simply remembering what it was like to be without God in the world and having no hope and being lost. So he says, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. We thank God for the canon of scripture he has given to us. Let us always remember, remember to be diligent to learn it, to teach it, to keep it before our eyes, for it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Let's stand and pray.